Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. In this special series, as an homage to my previous podcast, Crimes of Passion, we delve into the tragic reality that often accompanies the lives of artists and creators. Many, like Vincent van Gogh and Kurt Cobain, are remembered as troubled geniuses, Their struggles with depression, addiction, or other issues are intricately woven into their contributions to art and music. While the myth persists that pain enhances creativity and seeking help dulls artistic abilities, some artists indeed turn to illicit substances driven by a desire for heightened experiences. Jazz guitarist Brent Farstra aptly notes, Artists are pleasure seekers. They want to feel something different, be something different so that they may get a different result. Creative minds are never satisfied with normality. They always seek stimulation in any way, shape, or form. However, this positive pursuit can quickly take a dark turn. Performers, especially musicians, may suffer from repetitive stress injuries, leading them to turn to alcohol or opioids to numb the pain and ensure that the show goes on temporarily. The pressure of fame can also drive them to alcohol as a coping mechanism. Some believe certain drugs will enhance their abilities, inspired by their admired peers who seem to continuously improve their craft through substance use. Yet, as we know, the answer to this pursuit is often everything. Addiction, described by the Mayo Clinic as a condition where something pleasurable becomes something one can't live without, is a perilous path. Opioids like heroin release endorphins, offering temporary relief from pain and heightened pleasure. However, the body builds tolerance over time, necessitating increased drug intake to achieve the same level of pleasure. This is the loose foundation of how addictions take root. Today's episode focuses on a specific individual who fell victim to this cycle, jazz musician Lee Morgan. He faced struggles with addiction possibly domestic abuse, and 
ultimately met his tragic end, allegedly at the hands of his common-law wife, Helen. Okay, on to the show. Born on July 10th, 1938, Edward Lee Morgan, whom we'll refer to as Lee going forward, enjoyed a blessed upbringing in Philadelphia. The youngest of four children, the Morgan family shared a deep bond centered around their devotion to each other and their church. Music ran in their veins, with Lee's parents and sister Ernestine all being passionate musicians. From an early age, Lee displayed intelligence and brilliance, initiating his music career on the piano before transitioning to the trumpet, a gift from Ernestine on his ninth birthday. Lee's talent on the trumpet quickly catapulted him into the local jazz scene, where he seamlessly held his own alongside seasoned musicians. At the age of 15, he participated in a competitive jam session with jazz saxophonist Sonny Stitt, marking a significant step in his musical journey. By 18, Lee had joined the Jazz Messengers, led by drummer Art Blakely, launching his professional career. After graduating high school, he secured a feature soloist role in Dizzy Gillespie's Big Band, showcasing his remarkable talents for the next two years until the band disbanded in 1958. Lee's brilliance left an indelible mark on those who witnessed his performances. During one Dizzy Gillespie show, critic Nat Hentoff was captivated by a trumpet solo so vividly brilliant and electrifying that it silenced the entire room. Blue Note Records promptly signed Lee after their first New York performance. Opting to stay in New York after Dizzy disbanded the group, Lee intended to attend Juilliard. However, he was lured back into Art Blakely's Jazz Messengers before beginning his studies. Unfortunately, this decision marked the onset of Lee's troubles. An anonymous musician alleged that Art Blakely paid his musicians in drugs, exacerbating Lee's vulnerability to addiction. Despite Kiko Yamamoto, Lee's wife, emphasizing that Art managed his drug use, Lee succumbed to heroin, eventually leading to the disillusion of his marriage. Despite his supportive family, education, and absence of a criminal or mental health history, Lee, like many young black jazz musicians, fell prey to addiction due to the pervasive prejudice and exploitation rampant in the jazz scene during the segregation era. Influenced by renowned jazz musicians they admired, including saxophonist Charlie Bird Parker, who, like Lee, collaborated with Dizzy Gillespie, Lee found himself in a culture where heroin use was not just prevalent, but often considered fashionable. Even iconic figures like Miles Davis acknowledged that shooting heroin was considered hip in the jazz scene. Sadly, Bird's life, along with several others in the industry, was cut short at the age of 34. Lee's addiction took a toll on his health, causing the muscles in his lips to deteriorate, preventing him from playing the trumpet. The impact extended beyond his music, affecting his finances to the extent that he had to sell his trumpet to cover expenses and feed his substance dependency. In the early 1960s, rumors circulated about Lee's disappearance, speculating on his possible demise or enlistment in the army. However, he resurfaced in late 1963, 
revealing that he had been admitted to a prestigious rehabilitation facility in Lexington, Kentucky, known as the Narcotic Farm, later renamed the Federal Medical Center. The facility, renowned for its rehabilitation efforts and search for a permanent cure for addiction, had notable patients like William S. Burroughs and fellow jazz trumpeter Chet Baker. While not a complete cure, the treatment allowed Lee to return to society with a functional life. Back in action, Lee found himself immediately back in the recording studio. During a session for the album, The Sidewinder, when the band ran out of recording material, Lee excused himself to the bathroom. Concerned that he might be using drugs, the band members were relieved when he returned with a new song scribbled on toilet paper. The Sidewinder became a chart-topping hit, struggling to keep up with demand, making it the best-selling record Blue Note ever produced. The single, landing at number 32 on the pop charts, defied the trend of declining jazz popularity at the time. The Sidewinder solidified Blue Note and Lee's finances and earned him an impressive $15,000, equivalent to over $150,000 today. Lee continued his success with another record for Blue Note, Search for a New Land, reaching a respectable 20 on the R&B charts. At the young age of 25, Lee Morgan was already breaking records. But things started to go downhill when Lee once more spent time working with Art Blakely, and his addiction began to spiral out of control. After a brief reprieve, Lee was losing the ability to focus on his music, or anything that wasn't his addiction. A photograph exists of a recording session with Art Blakely's band in 1964 that shows Lee with a bandage wrapped tightly around his head, hiding a wound suffered from burning his scalp on the radiator after getting high and passing out one night. By 1967, only four years after getting his act together, Lee's life had already fallen apart again. He was homeless, sleeping on benches and in clubs, and had pawned his trumpet and winter coat to pay for his habits. This is when he met Helen Moore. Helen ran what Jazzwise described as an open house for musicians, and so prolific were the drugs within that community, it was a place of warmth and openness for a lot of addicts who had nowhere else to turn to be treated with kindness. She was an incredible cook, which certainly didn't hurt matters. Apparently, she took one look at Lee and decided to change his life. Quote, he told me he didn't have a coat because it was in the pawn shop. He had pawned his coat for some drugs. I told him, well, come on, I'm going to go get your coat. Helen, 13 years Lee Sr., was born in North Carolina in 1926, and her life took a dramatic turn when, barely a teenager, she gave birth to babies at the age of 13 and 14, cared for by her grandparents. At age 15, she moved to be with her mother, and by 17, she was married to a local bootlegger, more than double her age at 39. Unfortunately, their marriage was short-lived, as her husband drowned when Helen was just 19, leaving her a young widow. After the funeral, she moved to New York to stay with her late husband's parents, intending to stay for a couple of weeks, but ended up staying for more than three decades. Helen's oldest son, Harrison Morgan, mentioned that it was family lore that Helen's first husband's death might not have been an accidental drowning. There were whispers of Helen being involved, 
but these rumors were never substantiated. It's worth noting that studies suggest girls who marry before the age of 18 have a 41% increased risk of experiencing mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder. They are also more likely to develop dependencies on drugs and alcohol compared to women who marry as adults. Considering Helen's early motherhood and the significant age gap with her first husband, she may have faced considerable trauma before even reaching her mid-twenties. While this doesn't excuse her later actions, it's noteworthy that by the time she met Lee, she was known in the New York jazz scene as the Little Hip Square for abstaining from any kind of drug use. However, as we'll soon discover, she still had her own set of issues. Let's be real. Investing can be intimidating. So intimidating that sometimes it feels easier to just push it off. If you can identify with that, today's sponsor might be just the thing to kick you into gear. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns helps you automatically save and invest for your future. You don't need a lot of money to get started, which is amazing. You can even start by investing your spare change with Roundups, which is what I do. The app even gives you access to education and guidance to learn more about investing. So head to acorns.com TCFC to sign up for Acorns to start saving and investing for your future today. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA slash SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Okay, so that whole new year, new me, healthy eating, all that stuff feels like I'm always saying no. No to flavor, no to snacking, and no to the food that I love. But this year, I'm going strong with my healthy changes because I'm saying yes to Daily Harvest. You can check out on my social media, True Crime Cases with Lainey, if you want to see what they sent me live and in living color. Daily Harvest makes it easy to meet my goals and stick with them. They take the planning prep and cleanup out of cooking, which is my favorite, by delivering my favorite veggie and fruit packed meals straight to my door. The broccoli and cheese, oh my god, don't even get me started. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of gluten, fillers, seed oils, added starches and sugars, all the uh, stuff. It really does take the guesswork and effort out of eating food I know is good for me. Like I said, the broccoli and cheese is right up my alley, but I also have a pizza that I've been waiting to try, and I think I'll show you what it looks like next time. And I'll give you an update on what I think about it in the next episode. Now, my other favorite part is I'm huge on sustainable living. By using only recyclable or compostable packaging when possible, Daily Harvest is doing their part to take care of our earth, which helps me limit my waste and feel good. So be like me. Say yes to healthy habits without the hassle with Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com TCFC to get up to $65 off your first box and free shipping for a limited time only. That's dailyharvest.com slash TCFC for up to $65 off your first box and free shipping. dailyharvest.com slash TCFC. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After Helen had returned from the pawn shop with Lee's trumpet and coat that cold day in 1967, the pair quickly became inseparable. Helen was devoted to Lee, helping him manage his drug addiction and hoping to return him to something resembling his prior health. Helen discovered that he wasn't low on work because nobody wanted to hire him, but he had become notorious for not showing up to gigs because of his drug use. So she worked on fixing that, promising prospective employers that she would accompany Lee to ensure he turned up for every show. And she kept her word. Helen took on Lee's caretaker role, ensuring his clean clothes, shirts ironed, and shoes shined to present himself professionally to club owners and audiences. She played a pivotal role in rejuvenating Lee's career, handling everything from bookings to travel arrangements and, to a large extent, helping him stay clean. However, Helen herself described her role less kindly, stating that she took total control of him. For a time, This arrangement proved beneficial for both. They moved in together, settling in an apartment in the Bronx. With Helen's support, Lee made progress in his recovery, weathering the highs and lows of his journey. Despite not officially marrying, they lived together as husband and wife, with Helen adopting Lee's surname. Legally recognized as a common-law marriage, they were inseparable and introduced each other accordingly. Helen's significant role in Lee's life was widely acknowledged as breathing new life into him. However, in hindsight, observers began to recognize an unhealthy level of codependency in their relationship. Codependency often arises when one person in a relationship prioritizes the needs of the other, neglecting their own well-being. This dynamic is particularly prevalent when one person assumes a caretaker role especially in situations involving addiction. The caretaker may feel an undue sense of responsibility for the other person's actions despite having no control over the addiction or its consequences. Later interviews with Helen clarified that this was her position. Writer Ahamfule Oluo commented that Helen had clearly abandoned her identity in her quest to revitalize him. Codependency is also something that often stems from childhood experiences, such as neglect or other traumas. I don't want to make any assumptions about Helen's family life. Still, given that she was pregnant by the time she was 13, I don't think it's an unlikely possibility that this was where her issues originated. Maybe she was not cared for properly, so she decided to do for Lee what nobody did for her. Regardless of the cause, That more or less describes the route Helen and Lee's relationship went down. Lee's niece commented that it was like Helen was addicted to him. In her desperate attempts to save him from his addiction, she herself became obsessed. Not only was she managing his career and attempting to curb his use of drugs, 
but she was trying to control every other aspect of his life too, whether she realized it or not. Helen later confessed to feeling uncertain about whether she loved Lee or considered him her possession, admitting, part of that might have been my fault because I might have started being too possessive or too much like a mother to him. Having saved him, she felt entitled to command him. A significant source of tension between Lee and Helen was his struggle with addiction. Despite attempts to use methadone as a substitute for heroin, Lee turned to cocaine when heroin became scarce, under the mistaken belief that it posed no harm. Their relationship was marked by public arguments and occasional acts of violence, with reports suggesting mutual involvement. Benny Maupin, Lee's saxophonist, recounted witnessing an incident where Lee poured champagne over Helen's head, yelling for her to leave him alone. The extent of abuse reciprocity remains unclear. Despite the tumult, Lee showed signs of improvement. Clear-headed, he engaged in political activities, advocating for the civil rights of black musicians. He ventured into teaching at New York music schools and explored diverse music genres beyond his usual bebop, even if occasional methadone-induced naps interrupted his work. Helen's support enabled him to record more albums and perform numerous shows before his 1972 death. In a conversation with Benny Maupin shortly before his death, Lee expressed efforts to wean himself off methadone and quit smoking, signaling a sincere commitment to a better life. However, as Lee sought more independence, Helen clung tighter. The turning point came in 1971, when Lee started spending prolonged periods away from home, distancing himself from Helen. His frequent absences fueled her suspicions of infidelity, tragically proven right. The other woman in this situation was Judith Johnson, who lived in New Jersey. When Lee went missing, he was really staying with her. According to Helen, they were doing cocaine together, and she believed he preferred that to Helen trying to keep him clean. When Lee played shows, Judith would be there to see him, sitting at a table in front of the stage. For the first time since they had met, Helen stopped going to watch Lee perform, though she was still handling the business end of all of Lee's bookings. She was so hurt by this betrayal that she attempted to poison herself. Rather than leave Lee, who had become her whole life, she tried to end her life. Lee was at home that night and took her to the hospital so her stomach could get pumped. At the end of her tether, Helen suggested that Lee leave her and go live with his new girlfriend while she graciously offered to continue handling his business dealings. He refused to leave, and Helen believed that was because he knew that Helen was his best shot at any stability in life. But that didn't stop Lee from seeing Judith. Helen at some point also bought a gun, though it's not clear for what purpose, perhaps self-defense, though there does not appear to be any incident on record that would warrant a gun purchase. In February of 1972, Lee Morgan was booked to play an entire week of shows at Slug Saloon, a jazz club in Manhattan, that has also been ungenerously described as a dive bar. His shows at Slugs were exceedingly popular, and there was always a full house during the nights he played. Most of the week went by without a hitch until Saturday the 18th, when a blizzard hit the city. He and Judith Johnson were driving to the saloon when a patch of ice on the road sent the car spinning out of control 
resulting in a crash that totaled the car. Thankfully, neither Lee nor Judith were harmed, though Lee was in shock as a good friend of his had died due to a car crash in snowy conditions 15 years prior. Sadly, it would possibly have been better if Lee had ended up in the hospital from the incident. Nevertheless, he picked up his trumpet in its case and walked the rest of the way to the venue, still making it there in plenty of time for the show. The second incident that night occurred when Helen, on the spur of the moment, decided to watch Lee perform after an entire week of not attending his shows. She brought her gun with her. When she arrived at the show, it was an intermission during sets, and she plainly saw Lee sitting at the table with Judith Johnson. Upset, she began to shout at her husband and saxophone player Billy Harper, claimed that, in response, Lee was being kind of cocky about it and not taking Helen seriously. According to Billy, Helen told Lee that she had brought her gun, and Lee replied, I got the bullets, before forcing Helen out of the club. Accounts conflict on whether Lee escorted her outside or threw her out, but she was forced out without even her coat to protect her in the snowy weather. But she still had her bag and the gun that was inside of it. Helen managed to get back into the bar despite the bouncer's protestations. When Lee saw her, according to Helen, quote, I saw Lee rushing over there to me, and all I saw in his eyes was rage. And that was when 46-year-old Helen Morgan shot 33-year-old Lee Morgan in the chest. Lee fell to the floor, bleeding heavily, and Helen panicked, throwing the gun on top of the bar. Billy Harper said that Helen was screaming. She was out of her head or something. She was crying and standing over Lee. Meanwhile, Billy and the other band members remained in shock, while other patrons, including Judith Johnson, fled the bar. Police were called, and Helen made no attempt to escape capture. An ambulance was also dispatched, but struggled to reach the venue due to the weather conditions. And by the time the medics arrived an hour later, Lee Morgan had already bled to death on the floor of Slug Saloon. When police arrested Helen, she went without complaint. She was charged with second-degree manslaughter, but due to court transcripts getting misplaced, it isn't clear whether she pled guilty or not guilty, and what her eventual sentencing was. Helen did end up serving time in prison, though reports vary on whether she served three months before being released on bond or as long as two years. Lee Morgan's funeral was held on February 25, 1972, at the Church of the Advocate in his hometown of Philadelphia. Over 1,000 family, friends, and fans attended the service. Poignantly, noted by Luke Saunders, Lee's death had marked the untimely end to a vibrant, obsessive, and ultimately unsurpassed career in jazz. He was hugely missed by those around him and in the wider music scene, and sadly remembered by his friends as someone who was his own worst enemy, but a brilliant person, a true prodigy in his time. Lee's story still does not end there. However, as she continues to live, Helen's life is intrinsically entwined with his. Those who had known the couple were shocked and confused when they heard about the murder. They couldn't equate the loving couple who had hosted them countless times for parties and dinners with a fatal gunshot and a man bleeding out on the floor of a bar. It didn't make sense that Helen, the warm, pleasant woman who had saved Lee's life, had suddenly ended it. Fans of Lee's music were also in turmoil. Without Helen, 
Lee would have never managed to return to the scene to make the music they so adored, just as much as, without her, he might have still been alive to that day. They hated her as much as they owed the music they loved to her. Everyone who knew anything about Lee and Helen had so many questions. It wouldn't be until 1996 that they got any answers. Following her release from prison, Helen quietly removed herself from New York and went back to North Carolina to care for her ailing mother. During this time, she had devoted herself to the Methodist Church, gotten closer to her children and grandchildren, taken a handful of classes at a local college, and earned herself a degree. During a world civilization class, her teacher discovered they shared a background in jazz music. Larry Rennie Thomas, a writer, activist, DJ, and jazz enthusiast, among many other accolades, was her teacher and asked for Helen's husband's name. He was shocked to discover that her husband was that Lee Morgan and told her he would like to interview her and discover her side of the story. She agreed to the interview, but said she would call him when she was ready. Larry probably thought she had forgotten about it when he received the phone call eight years later, telling him she was ready for the interview. In February 1996, Helen broke her silence and spoke at length with Larry. I won't go through what transpired during that interview because a lot of it has been intersped throughout the script already. If you would like to hear the interviews for yourself as well as further information about Lee and Helen and their lives, a documentary that has been highly recommended throughout my research is Casper Collins' 2016 film, I Called Him Morgan. I can see brief clips on YouTube, but I can't find it on any streaming sites currently, but I'll keep an eye on it for the future. Larry wanted to do one final interview with Helen, but she died of heart failure just one month after they had spoken with each other. His tapings of their interview form a huge bulk of the information available about Lee and Helen Morgan, and a great deal of journalism would only exist with his efforts. Some of Helen and Lee's old friends found closure after the documentary's release. Reflecting on his memories of Helen, Benny Maupin reconciled the compassionate woman he knew with the media portrayal of a wildly jealous figure. He viewed the domestic dispute leading to Lee's murder as the breaking point in a tumultuous relationship. Benny expressed a wish that Lee could have handled their issues better and decried the violence, characterizing the murder as an act of temporary insanity, asserting that when Helen killed Lee, she essentially killed herself. As we conclude this episode, it's challenging to offer a tidy conclusion Lee and Helen were both victims of various circumstances, including addiction, neglect, mental illness, and abuse. While these circumstances don't justify their actions, it's hard not to empathize with the struggles they faced. The jazz world lost a legend prematurely with Lee Morgan's murder, and Helen Morgan seemingly carried the weight of the suffering caused by her actions throughout her life. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash true crime cases W Laney and Instagram at true crime cases with Laney. 
Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at LaineyHobbsBO or on TikTok at LaineyHobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at theinkypawprint.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.